true. Giving up on truth is what I, what I titled John chapter 18. And, and before I go there, let me just back up a little bit. Overview of John 18 in the gospel as a whole. Jesus has just finished his, his upper room discourse. Three chapters, 13, 14, 15, four chapters, 16. He's been teaching his disciples these last things that they need to know because he's going away. And where he goes, they can't come. He's going to death for them and for us. And, and, and so he gives them this truth. He prays for them in chapter 17. And now we begin to step into the, the advancing of that ultimate plan of God where the Savior will lay down his life for us. And he's arrested there in the garden. He's brought before the high priest. And uh, he's challenged there in an unlawful and untruthful way. They're willing to sacrifice truth. He ends up before Pilate. And Pilate, Pilate has, has long ago, um, he has given up on the notion that there's any truth at all. Peter's in the midst of all of this. And Peter is there in the courtyard being challenged concerning, is he one of Jesus' followers? He denies it. Why is John, including these things, why is John writing the Gospel of John as a, as a whole? He writes it late in the first century. And this is a time when the coming of Jesus' kingdom, Jesus' return, the establishment of his kingdom has been anticipated, and yet they're still waiting, even as we are. They haven't seen the fullness of it yet. They've been promised it, and yet they have not realized it. In the midst of that, the, the Jewish population at large has rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And so Christians who are believers in Jesus are no longer allowed under the banner of Judaism. They are no longer allowed as being, they are kicked off the bus, so to speak, of an allowed and legal non-Roman religion. They're, they're, they're going to be expected, like all the rest of the society, then to go along with the Roman things that show allegiance to the Roman Empire. The, 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 the Jewish people, as an ancient religion, were allowed to not participate, for instance, in the offerings to the emperor at the temple of the cult of Rome. Christians are not going to be afforded that same freedom. So they're not only experiencing, they're experiencing a shunning and an isolation and a, margin, a marginalizing from the Jewish community in which many of them have grown up in. Not only that, but they're experiencing varying levels of persecution and trouble and pressure from the Roman society as a whole and at times even from governors or emperors. For instance, the end of the first century, we have an emperor named Domitian. And Domitian... He's got, a, he's got identity issues. He likes to be known to others as Lord and God or Lord and Savior. That's who he wants you to call him. That's who he'd like. It's kind of like, you know, when you, you meet somebody, well, what, what, how should I address you? Well, call me Lord and Savior. Now, now, if I did that, you would think that was weird. And you probably wouldn't do it because you'd say, well, no, Bob, you're not. Jesus is. And there's that identity thing that I'm just going to have to get right. But, but, but Domitian had this issue, and if you disagreed with him, that could go badly for you. There was a huge temple to the emperor Domitian right there in Ephesus, which is where John has been ministering. John is impacting the entire church of Asia. Uh, th 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 this is a few decades after Paul's ministry. And, and out, of, out of Asia, there's, a, there's, a, there's this huge influence of the emperor cult as well. 
And so John's believers, John's church, those that he's writing, he has especially in mind, they are impacted by this pressure to go along with what everybody else says is true. In the midst of that, John writes the Gospel of John for the Gentile church in particularly to understand who Jesus is, not only as the Jewish Messiah, but as the Son of God. And there is no other like him. And as he, as he reveals who Jesus is to show us who God the Father is, he also, in this chapter, puts his finger a little bit on the moment in which they live which is not necessarily different in some ways from the moment in which we live. This is a moment where the Jewish leadership are willing to abandon truth to destroy an innocent man that they might preserve their own place, their own position in society. This is a, this is a historical moment where those in political power have have come, have arrived at such a cynical outlook, a skeptical outlook by what they've seen, the how, how power is arrived at and exercised and preserved, that they've lost confidence that there is any real or absolute truth at all. In those tensions that are described in this chapter, in the middle of that, woven in between all of that, we find Peter. And Peter's who I want to focus on, but first, let me read John chapter 18, and then we'll have a few comments around those other two circumstances, things that are not so different from where we're at today. John chapter 18, if you're following along in the church Bible, you'll find us on page 904. John chapter 18, page 904. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, and there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas had betrayed him. He also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band, a cohort, at least 600 soldiers. This is not a small huddle. They have a massive, overwhelming force to put down, force to put down any potential riot that could occur with a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing that all, would, all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Who do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am they drew back and they fell to the ground. This is a standard. That falling, falling to the ground is the standard response when people come into the presence of the true and the living God. You see it over and over in Scripture. And when Jesus says, I am, the ESV, among many other translations, fills it in to make it good English for us by saying, I am he. But Jesus simply said, I am. Well, he could be simply saying, I am the one that you're looking for, but he's saying more than that. He's using that same I am name that he's used throughout the Gospel of John, relating to his deity, the same name that God introduced himself as. When Moses says to him at the Exodus, who shall I say has sent me to Pharaoh? And God says, tell them, I am that I am has sent you to them. I am is God's name. And Jesus uses it here. I am. And they draw back and, they, and they, they fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And 
What are you doing down there? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Don't get in the way of this, Peter. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers and the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. You see, there were many high priests during this time period. They were all related to Annas. Annas had been high priest first for the first 15 years of the first century. And then the Romans replaced him and said, no, you can't be high priest anymore. We need to put somebody else in there. And so Annas nominated his son. And then another son. In turn, five sons of Annas served as high priest along with his son-in-law, Caiaphas. If you can't be high priest, keep it in the family. So Annas is running the whole show from behind the scenes here. Now it was Caiaphas, his son-in-law, who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, into the courtyard of his home, where they're going to question Jesus. But Peter stood outside the door, so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. He's with me. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servant's And officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. And the high priest inside is questioning Jesus about his disciples and and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. What they are trying to accuse him of is that he is in secret and off to the side, out of the public's eye, he is drawing people away from the truth of the God of Israel. That's what they're going to try to charge him with. He says, no, everything's been out in the open. Why do you ask me? Go and ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They will know what I said. There are witnesses all over this city you can ask. And the the true Jewish trial was not to question the accused. The accused was not put on the stand. But rather they had to bring two or three witnesses that could speak to what the accused is charged with. When he said these things, one of the officers standing there struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest, even though he's not really the high priest, Annas? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Bring your witnesses. Jesus is forcing an open and public trial where witnesses will have to be brought and they will have to bear false witness against him, which will again fulfill prophecy. He will be killed, but not for any guilt, not for any sin, except our guilt, our sin. Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest, the real high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked 
wait, didn't I see you at the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once the rooster crowed. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning, and they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them. Isn't it interesting? They, they don't want to go into the governor's palace because going into the governor's palace would defile them and keep them from the Passover. Now, murdering an innocent man, that's apparently not a problem. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. In a way, they're saying, Don't ask too many questions here. Just take him and crucify him, please. Pilate said to them, you take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And the Jews said to him, is it, not, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Oh, that's why they need Pilate. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Only the Romans could crucify. So Pilate enters his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation, your chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate says to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world. To bear witness to the truth, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. <clears throat> Pilate says, verse 38, what is truth? You see, in that last statement that Jesus gives, he, he sounds to Pilate a whole lot more like a, a Greek or Jewish philosopher than he does a king. And is of no threat to Pilate at all. Pilate doesn't care about what one philosopher says or another. What somebody says is truth because Pilate has learned long, long ago. Apparently, there is no truth except the political power to be exercised by Rome. So you have in this setting, first of all, as I described, you have some abandoning the truth to destroy an innocent man in order to preserve their own position. There's the Sanhedrin. There's the Pharisees. There's the, there's the high priests, the Sadducees. And yet the gospel is true even if the people, even if the whole culture reject it. We do not believe in a consensus Christianity. We believe in a biblical Christianity. We do not believe in a truth of God that is dependent upon the circumstances that we see any more than we, we determine the day of the week or the month of the year based on an apple tree blossoming out of season. Rather, we're going to be ready in season and out of season to stand for the truth of the gospel as we know it from God's word. You know, I hope, I hope that children still read and the parents still read to children because the book's probably more important to, or at least as important to parents as it is to children. I hope you still read the story of the emperor's new clothes. It's one of those stories that describes that which the public can be convinced to accept even though Every one of them individually knows that it's not true, but because they've been kowtowed into believing that everybody else sees this and understands this and knows this to be true, they'll believe it too because they don't want people to think they're the foolish one or the hateful one or the bigoted one. They don't want to be the one on the outside left out, so to preserve their own position with the herd as a whole, they will join in. And it takes a child to state the obvious 
the emperor has no clothes. The whole thing is a lie. In examples today, the, uh, the, the, the trouble, the problem, the uh, identifiable, diagnosable disability called gender dysphoria or gender confusion has been converted into, shifted into, changed into a whole, almost a l- l- unlimited list of gender identities that a person can have. There is no longer male and female he created that. And it's not merely people's own identities that's being attacked in this. It's not only who they are and who God made them to be that DNA still testifies to no matter what surgeries a person has or what, what claims they will, they will insist on. The DNA hasn't changed a bit. The calendar still says it's September. And yet... In the midst of all of that, the, 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 the attack is not only on who am I as God has made me, but it's on the very notion that God made us, made, made us in his own image to stand over creation. Humanity has been determined to be a liability to nature. We're the problem, not the ones that God gave guardianship of his creation to. Made in his image, made in his likeness, male and female, he created them. All that is being challenged today. The d- denial of an absolute truth for my truth or your truth. That plurality of reality is merely the latest expression of the two in the Garden of Eden who said we are going to determine what's right and wrong on our own perception of it rather than what God has said. We're going to do it our way on our terms instead of what God has said and on his terms. That's what's at stake here. Pilate has, is, 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 is willing to play along with the game of the day, which is there is no real truth at all. It's rather who has control, who has power, who can benefit me or who can hurt me. That determining my truth is whatever works for me, what, what that is, it's the days of the judges when each one does what is right in his own eyes. Change the wording just a little bit. Each one does what is true to them. And that age without standards was not a golden age. That was not a a, a wonderful age of limitless freedom and opportunity, casting off of shackles. No, it was an age of brutality and violence and sexual assault and intertribal warfare. Those were the new normal until godless anarchy shifted into tyranny. So when people say, well, your truth can be whatever you want it to be, that there's no absolute truth and that there's such a freedom in that that I can make true for me whatever I want, that is not the way to freedom. That is the way to brutality. Read the book of Judges again. Today, the gospel is portrayed as unaccepted, unaccepting, bigoted, hateful, unloving, uncaring, the exact opposite of what the gospel actually is. The gospel is embracing anyone, no matter what we've done, where we are, simply by believing in Jesus for us, taking our shame upon himself, taking our guilt upon himself. The gospel is, is, is not proudful or boastful, the gospel is humility. 
I have no claim to God except Jesus has taken me and Jesus had made me his own. He has made me into a child of God. And I stand before God not in myself and and the things that I would gather together and, and, and warrant before him, but I stand in acceptance before God because of what God himself has done for me in Jesus Christ. That he has made me his own child. He's made me a son of God. And that's the basis upon which I stand before him. The big issue for people in this idea of a truth, an absolute truth, the big issue is accountability. Fallen humanity would rather have a fallen king than a good and true and holy God as king. You see, if God is sovereign, then Annas or Caiaphas or Pilate or Caesar cannot be. That's the issue. Who's really going to be in charge of this thing? Who's really going to be the boss of me? That's what's going on here. That's what's going on all through humanity, ever since the garden until now. But don't forget Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot and scream against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us cast off his bonds from us? We don't want to be shackled. We don't want to be controlled. We don't want to be dictated to by God any longer. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And yet he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Our confidence is this. No matter what's going on in Jerusalem that night, no matter what's going on in your life today, our God is in control. That is our confidence And that is our hope. No matter the machinations and the twisting of truth that's going on at the high priest's house, no matter the denial of truth and the going with the whims of the day that Pilate is willing to do, that the institutions of justice themselves will not uphold what is right and true, even when that happens, know that your God is in control. I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And now we come to Peter. And Peter is the most important part of the story. The others are just surrounding players. The others are support cast. Peter is who it's really about because Peter is who connects with the life of those people that John is writing this for in the end of the first century and down through the centuries where it's going to get even worse, even, even into our day. We know Peter. We can understand Peter. We get something about Peter and his... Den- now. Peter's a funny character here. Peter gets a lot of, a lot of bad press. We have, the, we have the, 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 the high priest epitomizing how some will abandon truth to destroy an innocent man to preserve their own position. We have Pilate, Pilate who has given up. He's like those around us today who have given up on the reality of any real truth at all. And then you have Peter. And Peter is, is like some who will try to hide who they truly are. And this perhaps, we could get sucked into the other two and the practices around us, but this perhaps is the greater danger for us. For us to end up hiding who we truly are in the midst of the pressures that we're feeling from around us. So here's Peter. Now, Peter was told, Peter, no matter what the, remember, remember Peter's boast. No matter what these other guys do, I don't know what they're going to do. I, don't, I can't speak for them. But he said, I will be faithful to you even to death. And Jesus says, Peter, 
before the cock crows three times, you are going to, to deny me three times. And or before the cock crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. And, 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 and Peter takes those words to heart. He says, could I do that? Could I really deny my faith in my Lord? Would I do that? And I think what Peter does next, I think Peter doubles his efforts. Peter gets a lot of bad press. Peter, Peter is accused of cowardice. He cowers even before the, a servant girl there at the gate. But look at Peter in the garden. Peter is one who grabs one of the only two swords they have in the face of, of an overwhelming force of soldiers. Like I said, a Roman cohort technically is a thousand men, as, as few as 600. But we're not just talking a centurion commanding a hundred. This is bigger than that, commanded by the equivalent of a colonel in our, in, 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 in our army or military today. And this overwhelming force comes in order to keep any potential rioting around the arrest of Jesus from occurring. They're doing it at night, and they come with an overwhelming force, and yet Jesus, there's Peter next to Jesus. He grabs one of those two swords they own, and he pulls it out, and he's not afraid to swing it. He lops off this guy's ear. Now, that's got to, now, you're surrounded by Roman soldiers, and when somebody pulls out a sword and starts swinging it, what do they all do? Come on, you watch TV. This is not a, this is not a, a wise move on Peter's part, but it's not a coward's move either. It's a bold move. I think Peter is trying even harder to be faithful even unto death. And yet Jesus' answer to him is, is, is mustn't, don't I, must I not drink the cup which my Father has prepared for me? I can't avoid the cross. I have got to go to the cross. Peter, this is for you also. And he, the other gospel tells he heals the guy's ear. And somehow or another, how do you chop off a guy's ear, one of the officials of the high priest, in the company of, of an overwhelming force of soldiers, how do you do that and not get arrested? They didn't even have a reason to arrest Jesus, but they got a reason to arrest this guy. And yet Jesus pulls something off here. It kind of reminds me of, these are not the disciples that you're looking for. But it's way bigger than that. Come on, let's not go Star Wars on here. It's way bigger than that. But it shows the sovereignty. Jesus has a situational sovereignty. No matter the situation and circumstance you're in, he is the Lord of glory. I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And nobody will upset that. God himself has said. So there's Peter. So, so Peter's not arrested. He's left behind again. There goes Jesus. Well, Peter is not going to be left out of this. Peter is going to be faithful. And he follows after. The other disciples don't, but Peter does. And he goes in. And this entering the courtyard of the high priest, there's a gate, a controlling door into the courtyard. And when you're in there, you're locked in. You don't just roam in and just kind of pop in off the sidewalk and you can make a run for it if you needed to. No, this is enclosed. And within that enclosure, they start to ask him, hey, wait, 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 wait. aren't you one of his followers? No, 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 I'm not one of his followers. And the one guy, the relative of the guy whose ear he chopped off, right? Hey, didn't I see, that's not very far. Didn't I see you there in the garden? It's not very far. Wait, I remember it now. You are the guy that cut off. We're not surprised that Peter's trying to lay low here now. Peter is not denying who Jesus is. He's not denying who Jesus is. Peter is denying himself. 
Peter is denying who he is. Some might try to hide who they truly are. He's been bold and loyal, having narrowly escaped. And yet here he's denying who he is. And that's the, that's the danger of the first century. That's the danger of those who are pressed to, to show their allegiance to Caesar and to not be marginalized within the Jewish society. If they just don't make a big deal, if they just keep their faith in Jesus personal to themselves, that nobody else needs to know about it, they won't have to pay the social cost or maybe even worse in a society that doesn't want to hear about Jesus. And Paul, or John here, is reminding them of Peter. And Peter does that, and yet he goes out and weeps bitterly. He hides his faith. He hides his identity as one of Jesus' own. We might deny our faith in Christ even as those in the first century were tempted to do the same. And when we do, once we have, what then? Where do we stand then? What use can we possibly be to the Lord in the future if we have not been faithful in our trust in him for ourselves along the way? Also, those who had denied because of pressure from the empire, those who had had denied Jesus in the first century, second century, third century, The church had to figure out, what do we do with these? And John is helping us to know, what do I do with somebody who's stumbled? What do I do with somebody who has been unfaithful? And one of the things we can remember is that even when we are unfaithful, the Lord remains faithful. Remember how it was pointed out there? They're in the garden. These are not the disciples you're looking for. Let them go. Take me. Jesus, take me in their place. See what he's doing already? There there is the gospel. Jesus says, take me in their place. Leave them alone. I will die so that they can live free. Yeah, that's Jesus. And, and it says after that, that so as it is said, I have kept them until the end. And that statement, Lord, I have kept those whom you gave me, is coupled to Jesus' prayer that God himself would keep them according to his own name. Father, those that you have given me, which I have kept, and I've not, I've not lost one of them. Father, keep them according to your name, according to your character, who you are. Father, you keep them like I have kept them. And as Jesus has lived this out, even in this night, keeping and preserving his disciples at his own cost in their place, he said, that's, Father, that's your character that I'm living. You continue to keep them and preserve them. You can count on God to be this, himself. The early church is strengthened. Paul strengthens, Paul strengthens Timothy along these lines. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to pick it up. Paul is encouraging Timothy to, to, to take the mantle, to carry on. He's passing the torch. He's encouraging, he's encouraging Timothy, who can be a little hesitant at times. That's his personality. That's his character. Like you, like me, Peter, or rather Timothy, is a bit of an introvert. And this is what Paul reminds him of. He says, Timothy, don't look in the mirror too much. Remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David, he is the Messiah, as preached by my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound in chains as a criminal. Look what they've done to me. Looked out, it's turned out, but the word of God is not bound. That's what Paul says. 
Paul's not seeing his circumstances. Paul has experienced even in prison the word of God is not bound. Think about it for a minute. Where did we get the book of Ephesians? The book that shows our, the, the greatest expression in the New Testament of our identity in Christ and what God has done for us and our standing in him against the evil one and all of his principalities and power. Where did we get, where did we get the book of Ephesians? From Paul in prison. Where do we get that wonderful little most quotable of books? The, Paul's letter to the Philippians. We got that out of prison. He said, here I am bound for the gospel, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He said, Timothy, this is what you can count on. This saying is trustworthy. If we die with him, we shall live with him. If we endure him, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. But if we are unfaithful, yet he remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. God cannot be other than who he is. God must be God. God must be who he is. God must. Be. When you say God must be God, that doesn't just mean he's in charge. It means everything about his character. Everything that you see of his likeness in Jesus, that is who you can count on your God to be for you. He kept his own. He kept them to the end. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. They follow me. I give to them eternal life and they will never perish. No one is able to snatch them out of my hands. He said, no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands. He said, we're of the same mind on this and everything. You can count on your God to be exactly who he is for you, just as he said. We might try to guts it through. We might try even being warned by our God and our Father. You know, we are susceptible. We are weak. He's the one who is strong. We need his grace. We need to rely on him. We need his spirit working in us, not our own strength or our own plans, even our own ambitions, even our own best motives. We need his grace in us and through us. Peter could experience that. Paul himself writes in Romans chapter 7. Paul said, the very things that I, I don't want to do, I find myself doing. And the things that I want to do, the things that I would do, these I don't do. What is his conclusion? Who will separate me from the, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Praise be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's God who delivers me through Christ and his life in me. When did Peter write that? Or sorry, Paul. When did Paul write that? Romans chapter 7. He wrote it at the end of his third missionary journey. Just before he leaves Corinth and heads back to, 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 to Jerusalem, the other direction, he sends this letter off to Rome. At the end of his third mission journey, Paul still would say about himself, the things that I ought to do, I don't do. The things that I, I want to do, I don't do. I don't have the strength in me. Who will, who will give me strength? Who will deliver me? God through his son, Jesus. When we hide, even in the sense of our weakness and our need for our Savior, we might say, you know, I, I'm, I don't really have a problem with this sin or that. I, I, I'm okay. I'm, I'm strong enough. I can gut this through. I can keep myself from doing these things. We do two things there. We, by denying our own weakness, by denying our, our own susceptibility to sin, 
we will cut ourselves off from the help and the support and the encouragement of others. And we will also leave them on their own. Because it's not just you. It's not just me. We all need to walk together one with another because we all have this weakness inherent in our flesh. And we're able to share that with others. We're able to call sin even in our own life. Sin, there's strengthening there. And there's encouragement there. And to one with another that others know as well that it's not just me. I'm not alone. I don't need to stay hidden away in the shadows because everybody else has got their lives all together. No, we're a mess. We all got a lot of Peter in us. But look what God did with Peter. Look what God did with Paul. These are two men who could legitimately be ashamed of their beginnings. Paul, a murderer of the church. And yet God uses Peter, the denier. God uses Paul, the murderer. These are his two most prominent spokesmen for the advance of the gospel into the first century. Look what God will do. You know, the, uh, Paul tells us later that after Jesus rises, you know, the first person he goes to see, the first person that he appears to, aside from the women there around the tomb, the first of the disciples who sees him, he said he appear, appeared first to Peter, then to the twelve. Why did he go to Peter first? Well, how was Peter feeling? He denied him. He made such a bold claim, but he couldn't follow through. And yet Jesus goes to him. He says, Peter, I've got you. I've got you. And even when we were unfaithful, he remains faithful. Why? Because that's who he is. And who he is is who he is for you. What does he do with Peter? Do you remember the breakfast on the beach? After he's restored him individually, personally, first Peter, then in, in, in the room with the twelve as a whole. Remember, the two come running back from Emmaus, and, and they're greeted by the disciples. Who say, yeah, the Lord is risen, and he's appeared to Peter. And then he comes and he appears to the whole room full of them together. But later on, he appears to them again. They're up in Galilee. He told, go to Galilee. I'll see you there. And they get up to Galilee and they go fishing. And Jesus comes along the beach and, he, and they have breakfast at the beach. We'll get to that chapter in a couple weeks. Breakfast at the beach. And what does he do there? He calls out Peter before everybody. In front of everybody. And what's he do? He gives them the opportunity three times to confess his devotion to the Lord. Why? Because three times he denies him. And three times the Lord recommissions him, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. Why? Peter's done with himself, but God is not done with Peter. And now open up the book of Acts and watch this guy go. And Peter and John stand up. Peter and John stand up together and they say, you guys, you Sanhedrin, you do what we, you will. We have seen this story before, but you tell us what is right, that we should obey God rather than man. And that's the stand they took. And that's what's before us this morning. We're going to be intimidated. We're going to be pressured. We're going to be pushed to new definitions of truth, whether twisted by people to their own selfish aims or truth that's abandoned in cynicism to those who, who have given up hope that there could be any real truth that they could believe in. But you and I know the truth because you and I know the true and the living God. And even though I can't always be true, even though we are sometimes without faith, you remember the guy's prayer? Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Lord, I want to follow you. 
Help me even when I'm not faithful, even when I have neglected an opportunity that you set before me, even when I'm quiet, when I should have spoken up, or even when I've said something harsh, when I should have been quiet. Lord, would you redeem that the way you redeemed me? Let's pray. Father, this morning we trust you. We'll, we'll confess it anew that for the circumstances of life, the things that you set before us, the environment that you put us in, the things around us that we don't understand, Father, we will trust you in these things because you are true. Your word says that God will be found true though every man be shown to be a liar. So, Father, we will trust you. And, Lord, as we believe, help us in our unbelief. Help us to take steps of faith. Lord, even what we would do and say. Lord, help us to not be ashamed to identify us as that simple and humble person that has no great claim to goodness on our own, but that, yes, I believe in Jesus who loved me and died for me and who loves you too. Father, help us to live out that humility that would advance the gospel to people around us, even as it advanced it around the world. Lord, help us to trust you in what we now give, that we give this not because we're supposed to. We give this because we trust you as the true and living God to take what we would place in your hands and to work your will in a wonderfully miraculous way so that the nations may praise you that the peoples will truly be glad because they know our Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.